Well, this morning as we look at John 8 together, we're going to be thinking about this idea of change. And if you would, think with me just for a minute about change. Oftentimes we think about change as loss. Sometimes we think about change and wonder, can't this happen more quickly? Or why is this taking so long? We all know that change is really hard. Um, There are even times in our lives in which we in which we might think, you know, I'm just not sure this person's going to change, or I'm not sure I'm going to change. When we gather for worship, we are being reminded that God is always changing us. Always. Listen to this. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd love to look with you this morning in John chapter 8. I'm going to read this morning verses 31 to 38 and then verses 48 to 59. So we're going to look at the last section of this chapter together. So we're really thinking about 31 through 59. So the bulletin has all of those verses. Uh, The screen should have the ones that I'm just going to read to you. So that way, as we go through this chapter together and this section together, you can look back at the verses that I might not read, but still I'm drawing content out of. So you can see what we're looking at together. So John chapter 8, 31 to 38, 48 to 59. This is God's word. Let's receive it as if it is life, because it is true. And we can bank all that we are on it. Hear this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. Skip down to verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but... You have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Sounds like a pretty interesting exchange, doesn't it? Would you say there's a lot in that? Yeah, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can read the words that you said on this earth. And even now we can pray to you knowing that you are with your your father and that you and your father are superintending all through the power of the spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you caused these words that we read today to be written down so that we can bank our lives on them. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take truth and drive it deep into us so that our minds, our actions, our wills, our emotions will live this week to declare that what we have here in John 8 is true. So that all of our lives says yes to who Jesus is and who we are in him. So glorify yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach us, change us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'll remind you that John chapter 7 and chapter 8 are profoundly deep. And the same thing I've said to you since we started chapter 7, I'll say even more briefly today. I'm out of my depth. I will take you as far as I can go. But there's so much that is beyond me and therefore beyond what I can even communicate in this chapter. But I'm going to show you and teach you as best I can. Here's the point I want you to get from this passage. Here's the point of the passage as far as I can articulate at this point. Jesus did not come in order order to give you tips on how to live. Jesus did not come to make us the best version of ourselves. Jesus came to change me. Jesus came to change you. Jesus came to change us. So he didn't come in order to make us the best version of ourselves, and he didn't come to give us tips on how to live. He came to change. Now, there are four things we're going to look at. We're going to start at the end, that section roughly 39 to 59, verses 39 to 59. You can even back up to 37 to 59. Jesus came to change the way we think about him. He came to to change the way we think about him. He came to change us from thinking that he is safe And actually to realize he's actually really offensive. Look at these verses, 37 through 59. This is most clearly seen, that he came to change us, to convince us that he's not safe, he is offensive. This is most clearly seen in this last section, verses 37 through 59. Jesus is having a long back and forth between the Jews, and it all culminates in verse 59. 
He's going back and forth with them. And finally, he says something in which their response to what he says is that they bend over and they pick up rocks because they want to throw them at him. And it's not too far to say that they want to kill him at that moment. That means that they are slightly offended at him, doesn't it? Like they may think, we might think it's safe to interact with Jesus, but let me tell you, Jesus wants us to know that he is going to offend us. And that is exactly what he does here, is he offends them. Now briefly, this is what happened. Let me summarize this section for you. This whole conversation between Jesus and his audience centers around this Old Testament figure of Abraham. He's mentioned, I think, in verse 37, it carries on to the very end, to the very end of the chapter. And this is what Jesus says. He says to them, you are descendants of Abraham, but you aren't really children of Abraham. That's the first thing he says to them. Yeah, you're descendants of Abraham, but you're not really children of Abraham. There is a difference between being a blood relative of Abraham and a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Jesus says there's a huge difference between that. And you are related to Abraham by blood, but you're not a spiritual descendant of Abraham. As a matter of fact, you are actually spiritually linked up with, look at verse 44, the devil. How about that for being offensive? They're thinking I'm blood related to Abraham. We're good, Jesus. I know all about this God thing. We're good. And Jesus said, actually, you're more spiritually aligned with Satan himself. You can understand why they might be offended. They don't think they're that bad off. They think they're pretty good people. They think they've got a great lineage. They feel like they have a great heritage. Therefore, they feel as though they are good with God. And Jesus says, no, actually, you don't. You don't accept me. And because you don't accept me, you really don't know God. Your ancestors and being connected with them doesn't make you right with God. He even goes on to say, I actually know Abraham really well. Look at verse 56 and 57. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. He's saying, I know Abraham and Abraham knows me. He was looking forward to me. And they respond to that and say, well, how is that possible, Jesus? You're not even 50 years old. See the literalness with which they hear his words? Jesus is almost... And invariably, when he talks to the Pharisees, he is always cutting against their literal understanding of things. They have no imagination. They have no sense of depth. And here he is saying, I know Abraham. And all they can think is, you're not even 50. How in the world can you know Abraham? And Jesus presses it even further and says, well, actually, it's not just that I know him and that he knows me. I'm actually greater than Abraham. Look at what he says. Look down in verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, they picked up stones 
because they wanted to throw them at him. They wanted to kill him. They were so offended at his statement that they thought he is claiming to be God. And guess what? He absolutely is. They understood that. He had to go that far. He had to get to the point of saying, I am, because that title, ego e me, that title, I am, actually goes all the way back to the second book of the Bible. It goes all the way back to Exodus. It goes all the way back to the burning bush in which Moses was interacting with this burning bush in which God speaks and says, I am. And when God says that, God is saying, I am self-sufficient. I am self-existent. I need no one else. The whole image of the burning bush is meant to convey that God is someone who is burning and yet unconsumed. It's to communicate the idea that he is profoundly holy. And at the same time, he reaches out. When God says that to Moses, I am God is saying, I am self-existent, self-sufficient. I care for my people. I am burning for my people. With all of my being, I care for my people. And Moses, you got to go to them. And Jesus goes back to that moment right here in John 8 and says, I was at the burning bush. Think about how profound this is. They're offended at him because he says it, right? But you realize what Jesus is actually saying is that I am for you. He's claiming divinity, but he's tying it into Exodus, and he's saying, I, I burn for you. My whole being is for you. I exist to display my glory, and I am after spreading my glory in the world, and that includes you. And man, were they offended at that. They really didn't even understand what was going on in Exodus, much like we often don't understand what's going on in our lives. We get a glimpse of God's holiness and his power. We have a tendency to think, well, you're against me too, and he is in a sense to change you, to change me, and to make us into what we should be. You see, God will not be tamed, ever. He is absolutely self-sufficient, absolutely inexhaustible, and he burns his glory for his people. Jesus is not safe. He is not safe. As a matter of fact, he is going to offend us. He is going to offend us. He came to offend and to change us. Here's the second thing. This will be the quickest one. Jesus came to change the way that we live. You see, Jesus' assumption when he talks with us is that we are bent toward hearing lies and following lies. We are bent toward not following truth. We are bent toward making our own truth or trying to develop our own truth or create our own truth, but we're not bent on following truth, like objective true things. 
we're really committed to creating our own. Look at how Jesus connects this with them. Look at verse 32, 38, and 44. I just have to go over this quickly. He tells them, in essence, in verse 32, that they don't know the truth, because if they did, they would be free. We'll come back to that. He says, you should know the truth, meaning you don't know the truth yet. You're living in lies. If you look at verse 44, he's actually telling them that they are of their father, the father of lies, Satan himself. He tells them in verse 38, you actually do what you hear from your father. Let me tell you, it's hard to take that in, isn't it? And he's pressing that into us. Every single time we don't follow his truth, God's truth, we are hearing and living out a lie. Jesus is that clear. And he's come to change the way we live so that we stop living according to lies and we live according to truth. This is what predominantly we talked about last week that Jesus has come to be the light of the world, to live by truth. Light is contrasted with darkness. Lies are dark. Jesus is light. Light is truth. Jesus is saying, stop chasing the red laser everywhere. You remember this last week? You ever seen those YouTube videos of the cat with a red laser on the wall and the cat's all over the place? Jesus is like, stop chasing the red laser. Stop reaching for things that are never satisfying. Live your life by truth. And when you live by truth, when you prioritize truth, what that means is that your life is going to look like coming out of darkness. It's going to look like an entire life, years, decades, a whole lifetime of coming out of darkness, coming out of the black hole of defining self into the light of God defining us. Our whole lives are going to look like coming out of the darkness of living for self in which we live to give ourselves away. Our whole lives are going to look like coming out of darkness in the black hole of living as if this life is all that there is so that we will live for his kingdom and be part of God's kingdom, looking forward to heaven and earth being reunited again. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't live by lies of defining self, living for self. This life is all there is. Live by truth. I define you. Give yourself away. Live for my kingdom. Here's the third thing. Jesus changes us from outcasts to heirs. Look at verse 34 and 35. He says that if you, are a sla- if you sin, you are a slave to sin. And then he goes on to talk about how he will make us sons. The son, if a slave, the slave, excuse me, verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. If anyone sins, he is a slave to sin. Jesus is coming to change that. He has come to change that. Have you ever seen the video? Uh, as you can tell, I spent a lot of time on YouTube. Have you ever seen the video, it's a really old video, about how to catch a monkey? Have you ever seen this? Watch it with your kids. It's really entertaining. Here's the video, as much as I can put it together here instead of just showing it to you. Picture, if you will, a big butternut squash, okay? And this is how people would catch monkeys a long time ago. 
they would get this big thing that looks like a coconut or butternut squash, and they'd, they'd cut out the inside of it, and they'd cut a small hole on the top of the butternut squash. And then they'd take a piece of fruit, and they'd drop it down into that hole. And then they'd tie that butternut squash to a tree, trees where monkeys would climb. And what would happen is the monkey would come, and he would stick his arm down into that butternut squash, and he would grab the fruit because he knew it was there. And guess what would happen? He wouldn't let it go. Because he wanted that fruit so badly that he wouldn't let it go. And so here he is flipping around the tree because he won't let go of the fruit. Therefore, he's caught. When Jesus is talking about being a slave to sin and talks about sin with us in this passage, he's actually doing something profound. He doesn't talk about sin and talk about, well, you should be doing this or he shouldn't be doing that. Instead of thinking about what's right and wrong, Jesus is going right to the bullseye. He's going right to the heart. He's going to the place where sin begins. And he's actually wanting them to wrestle with this. He's actually wanting us to wrestle with this question. What is it that has you? If you're a slave of something, it means something has you, something owns you. You got your hand on the fruit and you won't let it go. That's how he's talking about sin. He's saying, what has you? What is it that you've latched onto and you will not let go? Think about this. What has all of your emotional commitment? What is it that defines who you are? What is it that makes you know in your life that you really matter so that if this thing was gone, you would feel devastated and as if your life didn't matter at all? What is it that has you? What is it that you cannot let go of and that you won't let go of? Is it success? Does success have you so that you have to continue to get more success and find success? Is it approval? So you have to have approval about whatever it is in your life. You have to have approval so you live for approval. And if you don't receive approval, then you're devastated. Then you feel as though you're worth nothing. Is it our career? So if we lose our job, lose our career, then we are worth nothing? Is that what is defining who we are? Accomplishments? Money? Being right all the time, is that what it is? Is that what it is that has us so we can never admit that we're wrong? We have to always be right about everything? Is that what we're clinging to? Is that what defines us? Is that what tells us that we're worth something? That we're the one that's always right? How about being busy? Is that where we get our self-worth? If we can just stay busy, then people will know that we're important. We'll know that our lives are worth something. Jesus is going right after that. You see, this is why we struggle with this. We struggle with this. This is why we let our career and our accomplishments own us. This is why we're willing to sacrifice our family for our job. This is why we're willing to sacrifice our family for our career. Because it has us. 
It's where we really are emotionally connected. It's where we really are deriving our worth. It's why we let our career or accomplishments affect our health. Because we're so committed to working and we're so committed to accomplishing things and we're so committed to approval and we're so committed to getting money that we'll let that affect our health. And we'll let it run our lives. It's why we let money dominate all of our decisions. It's why the more money we make, the less generous we become. It's why we build our securities around it. It's why our quest for money and accomplishments and approval and being right keeps us from being vulnerable with people. Because all those things have our hearts and our emotions and our wills. And therefore, we don't want to open up and we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be honest. We don't want to build community. Because we can't let go of being right or approval or accomplishing things. See, Jesus is laying all this out for them. Saying, do you, ever, do you even realize yet what actually has you? Because talking about doing this or not doing that isn't really going to get to your heart. But if you're owned by something, you got to start there. And Jesus draws this amazing contrast and comparison. Because all of us know what it's like to live as a slave where someone, something owns us. And he says, but I've come to make you an heir, a son, a daughter. You see, a slave lives this way. If I don't perform, I might get thrown out or beaten. The relationship of a slave is fundamentally and primarily about power and authority. We live our lives as slaves toward career and accomplishments and money and approval and being right and all those other things. You know what happens. It's never enough, right? How much money do we need? Oh, just a little more. How much approval do I need? need? A whole lot more. Where am I going to go in my career? A long way. It's easy for us to fall into exactly what Jesus is talking about. We're bent that way. Our hearts are sinful and self-centered. And Jesus is saying if you're living like that, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never find rest. Because you're always concerned that you might get thrown out. But Jesus has come to make us heirs, sons and daughters. Isn't that amazing? He's, like, he's offering this to them. He's saying, if you sin, you're a slave to it. But guess what? I've come to make you an heir, to make you a son, to make you a daughter. And instead of living your life every day knowing that you're not enough and things aren't enough and you've never done enough, if you receive me, if you recognize who I am, if you know that I define who you are and you're not living for yourself, you're living to give yourself away. And if you're living for my kingdom and know what I am doing in the world, then you know what it's like to live with love that's unconditional, in which you're not going to get thrown out. 
in which love is actually the foundation of your relationship. Not achievement. See, what Jesus is saying is that he is coming to change our status. No longer a slave, but a son, a daughter, in which we have full, complete, constant access to God, and in which he loves us unconditionally. Isn't that amazing? Jesus came to change us from outcasts to heirs. That's what he's saying to them. Then here's the fourth one. He came to change our view of freedom. Look at verse 31 and 32 and 36. He's talking about being in bondage and he's come to make us free. So if you can see the cumulative effect of this, I hope you can feel it and think about it. You live as a slave to sin, all you're gonna know is bondage. But if you wanna know freedom, then you gotta come to Jesus. Here's a simple definition of freedom. This is not my own, although I've reworded it. Here's the definition of freedom. Freedom is doing what I was made to do, not what I want to do. That's freedom. Real freedom is not doing what I want to do. Freedom is doing what I was made to do. Let's work this out. Let me show you what I mean. Think about what is it that you want to do. Let me tell you what I want to do and why this doesn't work. What I want to do I desire to eat ice cream a lot. Now, it's gotten better over the years, and this is a simple example, but let me tell you, it's true. And if it's true about something that seems this unimportant, just imagine the really important things. If I did what I wanted to do, I would eat a whole lot more ice cream in my life. There are times in my life in which I daydreamed about ice cream, but we're not going to go there. But if I did what I wanted to do, I would eat ice cream all the time. And I would never choose to eat vegetables. And when I had to choose to eat vegetables, it would be very limited in its scope. I would want ice cream more than anything. That's what I want to do. But you know what? If I live that way, if I think that freedom is doing what I want to do, and I just eat ice cream all the time, you know what will happen? You do. I'll end up very unhealthy. I'll end up obese. Might end up with diabetes. I certainly will have heart disease. I will be sick because I have some lactose issues. And they aren't fun. I will damage all kinds of things if I think freedom is just doing what I want to do. And if I just do what I want to do, I will damage all kinds of things in my life. My family, my body, the way I live, the way I operate, it'll mess everything up. You see, many of my desires, and my hunch is the same for you, many of my desires go against the way I was designed. I wasn't designed to eat ice cream all the time. I know, it's a hard, sobering truth I've had to learn. I wasn't designed to live that way. I can't think freedom is just doing what I want to do. It's not the way I was made. The way I was made is that I was designed to live for God. I was designed to be who God made me to be. I was 
made to live for him. So I will find freedom insofar as I do what I was made to do and be who God made me to be. That's freedom. Freedom is not doing what I want. Well, how do I get this freedom? Look at verse 31 and 32. Jesus lays it out. How do I get this freedom? Look at what he says. He makes these connections. We're going to do this quickly. He says, abide in my word. Because if you abide in my word, you'll find truth. And then he says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Abide in his word. When you abide in his word, you find truth. And when you're abiding and finding truth, then what will happen? You will be made what? Free. Jesus says you have to abide in me. How do I get this freedom? Well, it starts with abiding. You know, we can all spend, and we probably have, we can spend an awful lot of time reading and studying the Bible and not getting the message of the Bible. There are all kinds of Bible studies that I have been involved in in which those studies turn the Bible into action items, into a to-do list. We can also study the Bible over and over and look at it as a textbook in which the whole point of the Bible is meant to present a system of truth simply to refute error. And you can do either one of those and never actually get at the message of the Bible. Never actually get at the truth of the scriptures and what it says about the gospel and who Jesus is and what it means to be in him. And we're all guilty of this, I think. We can spend an awful lot of time studying and not actually get the message. And Jesus is saying you have to abide with the word. You have to get into it so that you know the message. And so the message continues to come through in every chapter, in every book, and how it all fits together. It's not just learning stuff and saying, that's wrong, that's right. It's not just reading stuff and saying, well, this is it, then I got to do this, 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 and this. It's getting at the message of the Bible so that our lives become a rhythm of repenting and believing so we understand more about sin and the grace of God and what the grace of God means in our lives. Jesus is saying, abide in the word. And let me tell you, I have learned this, and this has been illustrated for me beautifully in my daughters. My daughters play piano. And they show me what it means to abide. Because what they have done is that they have been abiding with their piano for years. They have given themselves to piano for hours a week and for many, many years. In abiding with piano, they have had to learn the notes. They have learned how to play notes together. They have learned how to play notes with both hands complementing one another. They have had to follow their guide, the teacher, and how the teacher has instructed them to grow and learn and try new things and be challenged. And when they do all those things and follow the design of the piano, because following the design of the piano is not the same thing as following the design of a drum. It's different. When they do that, 
They practice and they practice and they practice. Over years and years, they know the freedom of what it means to play the piano. They know the freedom of what it means because they have been abiding with this instrument for years. See? To abide in the Word of God means that we give ourselves to it. We stick with it. Here's a bigger one. We're shaped by it. It's not just that it gives us information. It's that it gets at our hearts. And we have to give ourselves to it over and over and over. That's what they've done. That's what Jesus is talking about. Abiding in the word because there you connect with truth and there you find freedom. Do you know why Jesus can say all these things? In this last whole section of this chapter, do you know why he can say all of this? Do you know why he can change us? Do you remember uh, the illustrations we've used over the last few weeks? If not, I hope you'll bear with me and maybe remember these. Remember we've talked about evil can evil? Remember that? This guy that tried to jump across Snake River Canyon, then he had this interview, and the guy says, hey, evil, why in the world would you do that? If you had a coin flip's chance of survival, why would you do that? And he says, do you know who I am? Remember that? You remember last week we talked about this guy named uh, Alex Honnold and the free solo thing? I'm sweating just <laughs> bringing it up. It's crazy. Um, talked about him climbing El Capitan. Remember that? 3,000 feet with a chalk bag and shoes. Remember that interview after it was over from people that had watched the documentary and they asked the directors of the, the film, hey, how did you all, what, how did you capture all this tension knowing this guy could die? And they say, well, there'll be no free solo too, right? And they ask him and he says, I have a completely different experience. It's actually the greatest day of my life. I enjoyed every minute of it. When Jesus said, I am, in verse 58, he is saying, for our purposes, are you impressed with evil can evil? You impressed with the Snake River Canyon? You impressed with Alex Honnold? You think free solo climbing El Cap is amazing? You think Yosemite is beautiful? I made the Snake River Canyon. I made El Capitan. I designed Yosemite. I even made the guy that climbed all the way up. I did all of that. I am completely self-sufficient. I have done all of this. I have no beginning. And the good news is that this God, the I am, Jesus, he's the one that went to the cross. He's the one that came out of the empty tomb. And because of that, because of what he did, that's why he's saying, oh, I'm going to offend you. I'm coming to change you. I'm coming to offend your pride, your self-sufficiency, and your quest for self. And I do that all 
by grace. I am, the I am that went to the cross and came out of the empty tomb, he came to change us so that we would live by truth and not just for our own comfort. The I am went to the cross and came out of the empty tomb so that we would change from outcasts to heirs, to be a child of God, even a joint heir with Jesus. And he came to change our view of freedom so that as we are fulfilling our callings this week, as we are doing whatever it is God has summoned us to do in career, home, family, neighborhood, whatever it is, so that we would do what we're made to do. That we would be who God's made us to be. The Lord your God is going to bless you. And he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he is going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come, forever and ever, even now, his presence is with you. And he will make you whole one day. He will make all things new. All because of Christ. Amen. Go in peace.